Amen. Grab a seat. Grab a seat. How we doing, church? Okay. It sounded like it was daylight savings. I promised myself I wasn't going to mention that, but you all forced my hand because of that terrible response. How we doing, church? Okay, it's a little bit better, a little bit better. Uh, hey, sorry I, uh, I missed out on you guys last week. I was away. Uh, every single year I get away with a few of my buddies, guys who um, uh, know, <laughs> have known who I am for an incredibly long uh, period of time. Uh, my, my, my longest friend, uh, I've known him since I was three, and we still get together every single year. And then another buddy I made when uh, I was a freshman in high school, uh, when we were playing water polo together, and I, I yelled at him because he cheated on the swim sets. And ever since then, like we were best friends. Uh, and then uh, our, my, the, 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 uh, the last guy, the fourth guy who was there, uh, I met when uh, he was a senior, or no, I was a senior in high school, he was a sophomore, and we just clicked. And so the intention of that every single year is for me to have guys speak truth into my life to make sure that uh, I am living above reproach, to make sure that uh, I'm leading my family well, I'm leading my personal life well, um, to make sure that I am following the Lord uh, in, in every aspect of my life. And so so that's where I was last week, um, and, uh, and I am not sorry for being gone last week because it was an incredible uh, weekend for me, a weekend of, of, uh, of refreshment. Um, but I did, I did miss you all. But I, I went back and listened to the podcast. If you, if you aren't following us on, uh, on, on iTunes, on our podcast, you search FBH for the first one that comes up. And so you can stay current with the series and all that stuff. You have to miss a week or whatever. Um, but uh, but I, I went back and I listened to Jeff last week and he did an incredible job of, of framing out uh, this new series that we're in called Under the Sun is we're going to take kind of a, a deep dive into the book of Ecclesiastes. And I've had a, I've had a few people actually come up to me and, and ask me, why is it that we're taking a deeper look at a book that a lot of people probably haven't even read, right? This isn't like the most popular book in the world. Um, it, it's if it's read incorrectly, as a matter of fact, it can, it can seem pretty de- depressing and pretty morose. And as you, as you look at it, you're like, why, why in the world would we do something like this book? But we, we decided to go through this book because, as you'll see today, it hits on a lot of topics that we are still, still dealing with in 2019. And as a matter of fact, one of the most popular verses in this book is when the author, probably Solomon, tells us that there is nothing new under the sun. And that's where we actually got our, uh, our phrasing for the title, Under the Sun. So the things in which we're currently dealing with are really the exact same things that humanity has always dealt with. Last week, Jeff framed up the book of Ecclesiastes by reminding us that meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And it really does beg the question for us, and this is going to be your first blank, if God exists and is concerned for man's response to him, why has he made life so frustrating? Why has God made life so frustrating if he is indeed concerned for us? Ecclesiastes was really written kind of as a, as a discussion guide for people to think out their response to God's hand that is, that is prevalent in every single area of our lives. 
God's hand is there. And while the book definitely contains uh, some practical advice, which is why it's considered wisdom literature, by the way, if you, if you uh, group books of the Bible by theme, this would fall into the wisdom literature category. Well, so it does contain uh, some practical advice. It doesn't appeal to the same audience as those people who would really enjoy reading like the book of Proverbs, right? You read the book of Proverbs, it's super black and white, do this and, and this will happen. The wise man does this, the foolish man does this. And all of us are like, okay, I want to be like the wise man. So I'm going to do what the wise man does. Right. And so, so the book of Proverbs is very black and white, very easy for all of us to read and easy for all of us to understand. This book would really be a lot closer to the book of Job because wisdom literature has really a twofold scope. Wisdom literature sets out the rules of life kind of for, for an individual who wishes to be a good member of a prosperous society And someone who looks for the right way to build up a God-fearing conscience. And so when you look at Proverbs, you're like, you know what? I I really want to be a part of of a prosperous society. And so I need to do my role. I'm going to do my part to make sure that, that, that I can do that. Right. And that's very much like the book of Proverbs. You read Ecclesiastes, you're like, I don't know if, I don't know if that kind of, kind of falls in there. The problem is though, is that society isn't ideal. We live in a broken society. Mankind has this fundamental fallen twist to it. And there will always be cases where, where a person finds things happening to him that he can't reconcile with what the Proverbs seems to promise. He may suffer when he expects blessing from God. And those who deserve punishment actually may prosper which really kind of seemingly flies in the face of a lot of the things that Proverbs tells us. And this is why we can closely relate Ecclesiastes to Job rather than Proverbs. And if you're familiar with the book of Job, and if you're new to faith, you probably aren't. Uh, But if you're familiar with it, you know that Job is a story about a guy who had everything. He had everything. God allowed it to be taken away. And even as Job was afflicted and got some real bad advice from some real bad friends... Uh, uh, he stayed committed to the Lord because he knew that regardless of his present circumstance, God loved him, right? And so that's very much the same theme that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. It feels like that. Some theologians have actually said that in order to get the most out of the book um, of Ecclesiastes, you should read it in one sitting, okay? To read it from start to finish. Because if we zoom in too much on Ecclesiastes, it just feels like meaningless meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It can feel depressing. So I would challenge you with that this week. Find a half hour. It's not a super long book of the Bible, but it is 12 chapters. So, so find a half hour sometime and read from start to finish. Because when you read the book from start to finish, it feels a whole lot more hopeful, a whole lot more uplifting. It feels like there is a positive resolution at the end of this rather than a negative one. So I would challenge you with that uh, um, this week. But regardless of that, uh, um, after the introduction of the book, which Jeff started last week, we're going we're gonna to cover some ground today. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 1-4, and we're going to stretch all the way to chapter 2, verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull those out. Find Ecclesiastes. We're going to start, start in verse 4. But after the introduction of the book, where, where Jeff explained to us that we are nothing more than a hovel, a mist... A puff of smoke. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. 
Solomon is going to go on and, and, and talk through the idea that there is a frustration in nature and history. He's going to start with the frustration in nature and history. So even knowing that we are indeed a mist, that we are nothing in the grand scheme of things, Solomon piles on. He piles on after saying meaningless, meaningless, everything is... He piles on starting in verse 4. And we should have it up on the screens as well. It says this. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea. Yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And Ecclesiastes is specifically dealing with, like we said, life under the sun or, or earthly life, if you will. And this is where the, the secular, the non-Christian, a non-believing person really would find himself or herself. That's where they are living and if he's a thinking person, if, if we are thinking people, those who, who don't believe in God like Solomon was, inside they're just screaming the same thing that Solomon was screaming, essentially vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All is vanity. The futility of life without God in the picture is an unbearable existence. And that's what Solomon is driving at over and over and over and over again. That our existence is unbearable apart from God. It has to be numbed with drugs or entertainment or immorality or any kind of amusement that we have available. That's the reality of life apart from Christ. So here's the question for the non-Christian to ponder. And if you're new with us today and you're new to faith and that sort of thing, then really think about this question. Why is it that you are here? Why are you here? Not here physically in church, here physically on earth. Why is it that you're here? What is the purpose of life? And I'm not, I'm not asking if you can find some temporal occupation of your time. Right? I'm not asking, well, because I'm, I, I work a job and I want to have a family. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. What is the, the purpose of you being here? I'm asking you to put some real lasting value on your existence and your experience here on earth. Because really, I mean, the question remains, are we then just a blob of protoplasm? Like, is that real? Like, is that with, with no eternal destiny, nothing after this? We're on this little planet that we call earth and we're moving 67,000 miles an hour, right? And, and, and all we want to do is live have an occupation, have a family, have some nice memories, and die. And that's it. That's a pretty depressing outlook on life. That's a pretty depressing outlook on life. Solomon has the presence of mind to ask why. Someone says, all right, look, I'm gonna, we got to get to the bottom of this thing. And he asks, he looks at the sun, right? And the sun comes up in the morning, that's in verse 5. And it goes down in the evening. And there it is in the original spot the next morning. It just keeps going. And Solomon's like, oh, yeah, it goes up and then it comes down and then it goes up again. And, it comes. and in verse 6, the wind blows south. But then the wind blows north. And the next thing you know, it's back to where it began. Because if you go south long enough, it becomes north. And if you go south long enough, it goes north. And it just keeps going round and round and round. And the next thing you know, it's back where it began. The rivers flow to the sea. 
but the sea is never filled. It's crazy. Solomon, I mean, Solomon knew like the evaporation condensation song that all of your like five-year-olds come home knowing, right? I, I, I wish I could remember it, but it's something like, I'm not going to try. <laughs> Kyle, come sing the evaporation song. <laughs> but the rivers flow to the sea and the sea is never filled. What frustrates, what frustrates Solomon most is that this is life as it is under the sun. Essentially, it's all going nowhere. Solomon tried to make some kind of sense of it all. A generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. There's, there's a transience about human existence on earth that really fails to bring us in touch with, with something that is absolutely new. If we, we root our hope then in the, in the next generation or in time, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. And not just because the next generation does things incorrectly, right? <laughs> we all think that. Right? The older generation thinks my generation does things wrong, and I already know that my kids are going to do things wrong because I know the right way to do things. Right? That's how we all feel. So if our hope is in the next generation, ultimately, we're going to be let down because generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. It's not going to be that nothing ever really changes except for the faces, except for the names, the methods, and perhaps the, the social and political dynamics. In fact, history repeats itself, and and no great thing emerges from under the sun. No great thing emerges from under the sun that changes the the, the essence of our existence here. We're born, we live and die, others are born. The world is a very repetitive place. Nothing ever changes. So any search for real meaning and lasting profit cannot come from under the sun. Examples are given from nature, right? Solomon talks about this, sun, wind, water. In the natural world, there's this this cycle that is simply repeated over and over and over, taking the objective observer to the conclusion that there is nothing new under the sun. If we're objective about it, if we look at it, if we look at the essence of things, there is nothing new under the sun. This is the the inspiration for Ernest Hemingway's title, The Sun Also Rises, as a matter of fact. Is that he recognized there's nothing new. The sun also rises. It's going to happen again and again and again. Solomon continues his frustration in verse 8 where he says, All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is full full of hearing. nor the ear, it's fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which you can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And according, according to Solomon, it is a weary and hopeless existence to wait for the earth or the human race to come up with something perfectly revolutionary. Perfect, that, that has never happened before. Solomon wants us to know that ain't happening. 
The theologian, the theologian, his name is Tremper Longman. He wrote, after all, the sun seems to be constantly moving around the earth. But the pattern is the same each and every day. Even if one observes changes in the sun's course over a year, it always stays within the same limits. And this is, this is comforting to a lot of us, right? I mean, this is comfort. We know what, what to expect. Like, like let's, let's think about nature. Let's think about the seasons changing, right? Ultimately, we know what to expect. Even if it gets a little bit colder than we're used to or a little bit warmer than we're used to, we know that once November hits, it's going to get rainy and miserable and a little bit chilly outside, which is great. But for some reason, on Halloween, it's always like 100 degrees, like, we know that's going to happen. And then Christmas time, we're always hoping for it to be chilly and frost on the ground and that sort of thing. And by mid-afternoon, it's like 65 degrees. And we're like, what's going on here? Right? But we know, like, we can expect that. We expect those changes. Those of you who are farmers and depend on seasonal changes on crops, you can recognize this probably better than most. That you know, hey, this is going to happen then and this month or whatever. seasonal, And there's some comfort in that, knowing what it is that, it, that is going to happen. This, ultimately, it doesn't change. It may change a little bit here and there, but ultimately it stays the same. This is especially true now in the, in the age of information, the information age. Every day, we see an endless procession of, of visual images as well as things that we listen to, right? We got TVs, we got YouTube, we got iPhones, we got Netflix. We got all the, all the things that even after all of our looking, all of our listening, all of those things, we still want to see more. We still want to hear more. There's always another show to binge watch on Netflix. There's always another podcast that you could subscribe to. There's always more information that you can be inundated with. There is always more, but we, all, we are always searching for more. And soon we're back to take in more of this endless procession of sounds and images over and over. We can't get enough. So what does this all mean? Under the sun, there is no answer. There is no ultimate fulfillment under the sun. There's no meaning. Solomon isn't trying to simply just be a downer, right? He's, he's not trying to be the authorial equivalent of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Like, that's not his intent. He wants us to learn from this book as early as possible what he finally learned late in life. If we're waiting for some new thing to excite our interests or fill our lives... It's futile. Life is far more boring than modern man admits. Political empires rise and fall. There are periods of war followed by periods of peace, followed by periods of war. The famous American philosopher, one of my favorites, Yogi Berra, said, said deja vu all over again. What really changes? Does communication change or just the methods and the speed in which we communicate? What really changes? Is it illness or just the diagnostics and the treatment protocols that, that happen? Do we really envision that, that someday there will be no need for doctors and hospitals here on earth? Does money really change? Or is it just the form of money, the use and systems of exchange that we have? Do relationships change? Politics change? Sin change? Don't confuse methods with essence. 
Don't confuse methods with essence. The essence of our existence here on earth doesn't change. It is what it is. As much as I hate that line, it is what it is because it explains nothing and everything at the same time, right? It simply is what it is. And it's hard to grapple with because we think as we become more enlightened, as we innovate more, as we become more intelligent, that, that ultimately this intelligent, these things that we learn will be able to fulfill our lives. But, but Solomon thought through that as well. And then he talked us through the idea that, that, there is, that we have a frustration with wisdom. We have the frustration of wisdom. We're going to walk through that right now. He lets us know that, that even when we think all the things we could think, and even when we innovate all the things that we could possibly innovate, in all the ways that innovation is possible, it is still futile. He tells us, starting in verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over all of Israel. In Jerusalem, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Look, he says, he says look, I am brilliant. Right? He doesn't, he, he was a little less arrogant than that, but he's like, look, I'm brilliant. Okay? I'm incredibly smart. I have done nothing but study. I've asked God for wisdom, as a matter of fact, and he gave it to me. And this is where he led me. Solomon has everything he could want. Everything he could want. He has no need. All he did was study because everyone else did everything else for him. So he's like, look, you know what? I don't have anything to do. I'm just going to study more. I'm going to get as much of this wisdom as I can possibly get. He had no wisdom withheld from him on earth except what was God's. And still he says everything under the sun is just like chasing after the wind. Good luck. It's futile. He goes on in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking can't be counted. I said to myself, look, I have, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief, which is interesting, right? Which is interesting because modern day humans would usually say more money, more problems, not more knowledge, more problems. That's an early 2000s rap reference for those of you in the room. Anybody? No? Okay, cool. But, but maybe you've known somebody like this. I've known no, numerous people like this, right? Some who have stored up more knowledge than they know what to do with. And because of that vast amounts of knowledge, they tend to not even be able to move forward. They're stuck because they know all of these issues. And it becomes even overwhelming because they're like, look, if I, I can't solve even one of these issues, much less the 30 that I know about and I'm well read about. I can't even move Beyond that, they're almost paralyzed by all the things they know and the understanding that mankind in our time here on earth is futile. That one day it'll all perish and there's simply nothing that we can do about it. There's nothing we can do about it. So oftentimes people uh, then will turn to riches, right? They're like, you know what? Okay, okay. If, if I can't solve something, if I recognize that my time here on earth is futile, that regardless of what happens, I'm going to live and I'm going to die. You know what? I'm going to make that the best living experience that I can possibly have. 
I'm going to gain so much wealth and so much stuff that it's going to be obscene to most people because I'm really going to enjoy myself. That's what I'm going to do. But Solomon beats us to that as well. Wouldn't you know it? Solomon says, Solomon, he has a frustration then with unlimited wealth, right? He's like, okay, okay, we're going to move beyond wisdom. We're going to get to wealth. But look, there's frustration even in the idea of unlimited wealth. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. It says this, that I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Verse four, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. Vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. And I also owned herds and flocks than more than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all this, my wisdom stayed with me. He's saying, look, I got all this stuff. And guess what? I'm also still smarter than you. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was, the re- this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Man, you talk about a guy who had no need. More, more stuff, more riches. I mean, everything that he could have possibly wanted his entire life. Literally more wives and concubines than he knew what to do with. Right? The pleasures of the flesh on this, uh, under the sun. And still he says, regardless of me indulging in all of those things, everything is meaningless. Man, look, in the first three verses in Ecclesiastes 2, he tried pleasure. He gratified his flesh in every way that he could think of, but it left him empty. Back in verses 4 through 6, he took on projects. He was building houses. He was planting vineyards. And the end, he could find no real fulfillment there. And there's some temporal satisfaction in those things, right? I mowed my lawn uh, two days ago. Looked pretty good two days ago. Guess what? It's not going to look too good in three more days. I'm going to have to go mow my lawn again. There's some temporal satisfaction. I was like, that looks awesome. Good job, Peter. In three days, I'm going to be bummed out because I'm going to have to go outside and do it again. So there are, there is some temporal satisfaction in these things. But it doesn't last. In verses 7 and 8, he acquired things, materialism. It all led to his conclusion in 17. Therefore, and we'll get to that this week. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping, grasping for the wind. All is vanity and grasping for the wind. This leads us to only two options. Option number one, either there is no God and there is nothing after the grave 
or there is God and I would be wise to prepare to meet up with him. Those are our two options that we're going to hit here. Now, if the first premise is true, that then utter selfishness is the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. Don't talk to me about loving your family. You're just a blob of protoplasm, like we said, seeking to survive. That's your only option. Evolved cells don't love. They take for themselves and they live. That's what evolved cells do. Don't give me a little bit of God. Follow your own assumption to their logical conclusion. If this is all there is, then we should do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we shall die. So Paul says, if if the son of man did not rise, then let us eat and drink and be merry because we're going to die. And so ultimately it doesn't matter. Let's have a great time while we're here. That's what the world should look like apart from God. There would be no conscience, no societal imposed morality. We would simply be here to consume, not worry about anything else and die. Paul had it right. Apart from God, you know what we should do apart from God? We should party apart from God. That's what Paul, that's what Paul even tells us. On the other hand, If there's a creator, perhaps I should find out who he is and what he expects of me and go in that direction. God tells us in Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Verse 24, but let him who glorifies, let him who glorifies glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. When your entire life is balanced, your, your wisdom, your might, your riches, those things don't matter anymore. Those things don't matter anymore. Your relationship with your creator will be the issue. Solomon comes to something very close to this at the end of his book. And and we're jumping ahead, but I told you to read this week anyway, so I'm going to let you know how it ends. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, it says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Verse 14, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Man, the book of Ecclesiastes is written by a person who observes the emptiness of life under the sun and has drawn this conclusion. You would do well to live your life in reverence to God because one day you will indeed give an account to that God. So while we read these words and we, we understand them from a logical perspective, right? No one who looks at these two things who believes in God would, would choose the first, Right? You would choose the second thing. So from a logical perspective, these things don't take root, though, until they drip their way down into our hearts, until we understand them here. Because once we've come to that logical conclusion that that we were made for more than survival until death, everything shifts. If we aren't here merely to consume, then, then what we are here for needs to be seen through the lens through which we should see everything. And that lens is though everything under the sun is frustrating, knowing Jesus is everything. 
Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way, the truth, and the life, it's not a path. It's the person of Christ. It's not something that you walk down. It is the person of Christ. You go through him. John 1, 4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is where we find purpose. This is where we find meaning. In a life filled with futility, where we say meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Here we find purpose. Purpose. We indeed have a purpose. Is what John tells us. And we get past the, the dumpy pants part of this whole thing. And the depressing part of this whole thing. And recognize that Solomon is painting this beautiful picture of our actual total depravity. Once we, once we realize that, the, the idea of total depravity goes all the way back to creation. If you're new to faith, this idea of total depravity, it's a theological word. And it goes back to creation when Adam and Eve sinned and ate the fruit, right? And that's when we have the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. The idea of total depravity means that because of that sin, because of original sin, what has happened is all of us are now sinners. No one is born good. No one is good. As soon as life begins, we are indeed bad. Ask, ask moms who have morning sickness, right? They're like, there's no way this thing inside of me is good. This thing is evil. <laughs> right? We are bad from the outset, from the very start of life. We are bad. We, we are totally depraved. It means we're sinful creatures. And Solomon knew this. He would have been familiar with the story of the fall of man. And so he illustrates for us what our depravity actually looks like. He illustrates for us that everything is meaningless apart from Christ. Everything is meaningless apart from Christ who is sufficient for all of us. He is everything to us. So to answer your question I posed for you earlier, right? You guys have to take your notes back out because you put them away because I finished. And you guys are like, it's time for lunch now. Pull your notes back out. That first question that I asked is, if God exists and is concerned for man's response to him, why has he made life so frustrating? Why has he made life so, so frustrating? The answer is that God didn't make life frustrating. Man did. God didn't make life frustrating. Man did. And God saw how messed up man was and cared enough to send his son as a sacrifice for us. So while everything is meaningless, Jesus is everything. Because in his sufficiency, in his all-covering grace, we get the opportunity to love God and people really well on this side of eternity and the next. There are people who are walking around in our community who are thinking to themselves that this is as good as it gets. This life is as good as it gets. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to fill my times with things that make me feel happy, but ultimately probably leave me feeling a little bit empty. I'm going to go to bed and then I'm going to wake up and I'm going to do it all over again. Man, that's as good as it gets, so I better fill my life with wisdom and riches and, and be able to go out into nature and see all of those things. But, but that's as good as it gets. Church, just imagine what it would look like if we recognized that Scripture wasn't just something that we're supposed to read and internalize. 
What if we recognized it for what it was? It was good news for us to share with our world. Because if what Solomon says is true, and we have no reason not to believe, then then there is a world out there, a world that you are already connected to, that simply believes that everything is meaningless and we are desperately searching for meaning. Lean in, church. We need to decide to impact our community with the message of Christ so we can turn away from meaningless and turn into purpose. 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 I indeed have a purpose. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I thank you for this morning and, and hard messages, messages that does indeed talk about our depraved state in that everything is meaningless apart from you. That God, I'm so thankful that that in the midst of your creation, you reached down, you gave your son on our behalf so that our life would be so much more than just meaninglessness. That we would be able, that, that we are reconciled to you, that we, we, we are yours because of the fact that you sent your son on our behalf. And God, if there's people in here this morning with heads still bowed and eyes still closed who don't yet know you, who are searching for meaning, searching for understanding. Maybe that's why they are here this morning. God, I pray that, that, that they would just pray the ABCs along with me, that A, that, that we would admit that we're a sinner in need of a Savior. Just say, God, I am so messed up. I've been searching for meaning in all the wrong places and temporal satisfaction and, and whatever sin it is that we've been searching for meaning, God. Man, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That B, that I would believe I believe, God, that you sent your son to die on the cross on my behalf. That all that sin, all that stuff that I've dealt with, that was nailed to the cross with Christ. It was one sacrifice that was enough for all mankind forever. That I believe that you sent your son on my behalf and see, I would choose to follow him every single day of my life. That I would recognize that my life is so much more than meaningless, meaningless. That, God, I indeed have a purpose because of the fact that your son came and died on a cross for us. God, that I would choose to follow him every single day of my life. God, I'm so thankful for our church and a church that wants to see your community impacted for good with the truth of your son. God, I pray that, that we would indeed do that, that we would take the gospel message to the people that we already indeed have in our world, those people that we know who don't yet know you. God, I pray that you would give us boldness in that to be able to just step out in faith and say, say, look, I know life is hard right now and it may seem meaningless, but, but, but man, I have a God that if you just knew, if you knew what it meant to follow Jesus, that you would recognize life isn't meaningless, that we have a purpose here. Father, I pray for that, that boldness for our church. I pray for that boldness even for me, Father, to be able to go from here and proclaim your name unashamedly. We're thankful for you and your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.